13 through 22. Now on that day, when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabians attacked them and took them, and they also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them, and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their, brother, in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground in worship. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. Good afternoon. We invite you to be taking out your Bibles. We're going to be studying from them this afternoon. And... We are going to be looking at the passage that we started with this morning in Psalm 73. I invite you to be taking out your Bibles and be turning there with me. Certainly good to see each and every one out this afternoon. And we're thankful for another opportunity to worship God and study from His holy and divine Word. Periodically this year, we are going to have some sermons that try to deal with the questions or the argumentation that we might get from an atheist or a skeptic, someone who might say they don't believe in God or they are very skeptical. Maybe they would claim to be an agnostic and have you know, the verdict still out kind of approach to whether God exists. We uh, want to study some of those things uh, this year. And the first thing that we need to devote some attention to is the question about human suffering. That is sometimes one of the things that is brought up uh, as a point to say, well, there is no God. We'll examine the argument in a few moments. But you look around the world, just as Asaph did in Psalm 73, and in verse 3, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death. And their body is fat, and they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth that these wicked, evil, ungodly people, they're succeeding in life. They are doing very well. And they don't have pain even in their death, even in their suffering. There's very little that they go through that would trouble the soul. That they don't suffer 
And Asaph is speaking from a point of envy, as we mentioned this morning. That he is speaking from a point of jealousy here. And we can see in our own life, we can probably see those times where the wicked seem to be doing very well for themselves. And the godly seem to suffer. Because I would imagine that if we were to go through and talk about some of the things that we have experienced in our lives, then we would probably be able to turn this into very much a woe is me kind of discussion, couldn't we? Because we've all probably been through some kind of pain, some kind of loss. Maybe the death of a, a close friend or family member who suffered with a terrible, terrible disease. Maybe we've had to deal with a murder or a suicide. Or we've known dear friends who have endured something like that. Maybe we have suffered some life-altering injuries or accidents. I remember as a child, uh, it made a very big impact on, on my life, at least at a very young age, around the age six or seven years old. We were living in Gordon, Georgia, and I remember my Bible class teacher, she was uh, a young mother and couldn't have been any older than what I am today. And she was coming home on a Saturday night from the fair, and she was killed by a drunk driver. I remember the funeral. I remember how packed that church building was. I remember the letters that her students from the school that she taught at. I remember some of the letters that were written. I remember her parents having to go through that. Maybe it's natural disasters, tornadoes, hurricanes, destruction of property. Maybe it's national issues that we see at war, moments like September 11th, poverty or homelessness. There's all sorts of suffering that we see in this life. Parents who might have to bury a child or parents who lose a child due to miscarriage. Divorce, painful suffering that we have to experience and go through. And I want to just be very clear this afternoon. While suffering is a part of life, and the Bible is going to help us through that, the Bible can help you through those moments of suffering. I want to also reaffirm that suffering does not have to become some sort of crisis of faith. As an atheist or an agnostic, some kind of person who's skeptical about God and about the Bible, as they might claim. Atheists, agnostics, and skeptics would often appeal to the problem of suffering as proof that there is no God. And we need to look and examine their argument and ask, does it hold up? And I believe the answer is no. 
And so some of the terms that you might hear and that we just need to be made aware of as we approach this subject is uh, the idea of, of God. And sometimes uh, in, in more broad and general terms, you have atheism, which is no God at all. There's no, no existence of, of some divine being or person. Where as opposed to that, you have theism, which is God made all things. The idea of, of what we would believe and what uh, Jews might believe as well, that there is a Creator who made all things, that God is the cause of life, and He's the Creator of life. But then there is another false notion that pantheism, that God is all things. You think if you like Star Wars, you know, the force and you can manipulate the force, the, the forces around us and lives through us and, and breathes through us. That's pantheism, basically. And you can like Star Wars and not be a pantheist. I just want to make that clear because I'm a big Star Wars fan. But that, that notion is basically what pantheism is. And so we are clearly, I would hope that we understand that we are on the side of the theist in this argument. We're opposed to atheism, but we need to examine the merits of the argument and see whether they are, if they hold up. And so generally speaking, this might be how you would engage with an atheist and they might argue based on the the fact that there is suffering. They would say, well, it, to you as a Christian, they might say, well, you know, if you believe that there is a perfectly good God, well, a perfectly good God would not allow suffering to exist in the first place. Because if He is all that good, then He has to be opposed to suffering, right? Right? That might be how the, the conversation goes. Then they might even take it a next step. That if you claim to believe in an all-powerful God, then He could prevent suffering. Yet suffering exists, so... Well, He's not all-powerful. You see? You see the trap, how they try to get you into this? And so the conclusion that they might lead to is therefore there is not a perfectly good nor all-powerful God. And what will become apparent as we consider this atheistic argument is that they speak about God and His attributes like goodness or His power. And they use terms that we would use. They use a common vernacular but they have a very different assumption of how God would use His attributes. They have a very different assumption of how God works and how God operates. I think we will see that as the evening unfolds. But what I think we need to point out, and it's worth pointing out here, and we're going to see it through some quotes, and not because I don't want you to just take my word for their arguments here. I, I, I'm going to try to put some quotes up this evening that would help us see from the horse's mouth, so to speak, what people believe and what how they're arguing. But I think it's worth pointing out here as they're as we're talking about God in a discussion about God. You see that they are using 
even in their argument, the notions of goodness versus evil or suffering. We're talking about God and we're making certain assumptions about how God would work under certain scenarios. There are some assumptions that are being made in these statements. And so I think that's important for us to notice as we see. And the chart that I had just put up about their atheistic argument, it basically comes from J.L. Mackey in his essays in a book called The Problem of Evil. He was a philosopher who defended skepticism and atheism. And he puts in his own words that God is omnipotent. God is wholly good, and yet evil exists. And then he goes on, there seems to be some contradiction between these three propositions, so that if any two of them were true, the third would be false. But at the same time, all three are essential parts of most theological positions. The theologian, that's just someone who is defending the idea of God, a theologian it seems, at once must adhere and cannot consistently adhere to all three. From these it follows that a good, omnipotent thing eliminates evil completely. And then the propositions that a good, omnipotent thing exists and that evil exists are incompatible. So he's making that argument that we just put up on the screen. That God is all-powerful, God is all good, and yet evil or suffering exists. And he says, that just can't be. He says, that is just impossible. That if you have any amount of suffering, then that just eliminates the notion of God, or a God who is omnipotent and good. And so you've had some responses to this. This is not, uh, this is someone, uh, Alistair McGrath. He is a lecturer in Christian doctrine and ethics. And this afternoon, I hope that you will bear some leniency uh, in how we might describe some of these people. I would not necessarily say these are New Testament Christians who have obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they are writing in defense of Christianity. That some of these people will write in response and in defense of God and Christ in the Bible. And here is one such uh, man. He is a lecturer in Christian doctrine and ethics. He was a former atheist. and He is a professor of science and religion at Oxford University. And he makes some statements dealing with this argument. He says, some atheists argue that the existence of suffering is evil and therefore is in itself inadequate to disprove the existence of God. This is a curious argument, he goes on, since closer examination shows that it is self-defeating an argument from the existence of evil to non-existence of God depends on establishing that suffering is indeed evil. Now that's a huge point that I think he's absolutely correct about. He says that 
taking the existence of evil and dealing with this problem right here of suffering and evil and saying, well, this exists, so that means God doesn't exist. He says that means that you have to classify suffering as evil. Now think about this. He says this is not an empirical observation, is it? It is a moral judgment. To say suffering is inherently evil, that requires some sense of morality, doesn't it? It requires some sense of right or wrong. He says suffering is natural. For it to be evil, a moral framework has to be presupposed. But where does this framework come from? The argument requires the existence of an absolute moral framework if it is to work. Yet the existence of such an absolute framework is in itself widely seen as pointing to God's existence. He's saying that, look, the argument that an atheist is making, they are assuming that some moral category here, that, that suffering is evil, and so he's saying, where do they get that moral framework from? Well, that is actually the argument that a Christian ought to make for the existence of God. That our morality comes from God. And so he's saying that he's trying to get that very clear. Yet the existence of such an absolute framework is itself widely seen as pointing to God's existence in the end. The non-existence of God seems to end up depending on God's existence. He says that's the conundrum that the atheist is in. It's not the best argument. Yet, if it's simply my personal perception that nature is evil, this has no relevance to the debate about God. It might simply say something about my naive and sentimental taste rather than about the deep structures of the universe. And so what I think he is absolutely right about here is that suffering is... <clears throat> something that is not necessarily moral here. That suffering is natural. And we're going to talk about that this afternoon. And the Bible's presentation of suffering. Suffering is not fun and it's not pleasant. And it hurts. Imagine Job in the passage we read, hearing that all of your livestock have been lost hearing that your children were all killed, hearing that every servant you had was dead, and you think you had a, a bad Monday every now and then. It must have been Monday, I mean, for on Job. Sometimes we, that, that's terrible, and it's, it's absolutely no good. And it's very unpleasant. But to argue that suffering is inherently evil, well, that may not always be the case. C.S. Lewis is a favorite author of mine. He was an author and professor at Oxford University. He grew up around Christianity, and I use that term loosely. But he became an atheist. And eventually, he found his way back to belief in God. And he makes the same point in his book, 
Mere Christianity. If you've never read that, I would highly encourage you to read it. It is some excellent reading. And he says, and of course, that raises a very big question. If a good God made the world, why has it gone wrong? And for many years, I simply refused to listen to the Christian answers to this question because I kept on feeling whatever you say and however clever your arguments are, isn't it much simpler and easier to say that the world was not made by any intelligent power? Aren't all your arguments simply a complicated attempt to avoid the obvious? But then that threw me back into another difficulty. He's explaining his own journey here how he figured out that there is a God. He says, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? If the whole show was bad and senseless from A to Z, so to speak, why did I, who was supposed to be part of the show, find myself in such violent reaction against it? Of course, I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too. For the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust. Not simply that it did not happen to please my fancies. Though he's saying this whole sense of morality really caused him to uh, cause his head to spin. Let's put it that way. He says, thus in the very act of trying to prove that God did not exist, in other words, that the whole of reality was senseless, I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. Think about that. That if he's saying we should have never been able to figure all this out save for the existence of a God who created us with the capability of reasoning and thinking this through and being able to come to the realization that God does exist. Timothy Keller, a current denominational preacher and Christian apologist who actively defends the existence of God, he wrote a book, a very popular book called The Reason for God, Belief in an Age of Skepticism. And he says, modern day objections to God that are based on an evil in the world are based on a sense of fair play and justice. People, we believe, ought not to suffer or be excluded, die of hunger or oppression. But the evolutionary mechanism of natural selection depends on death destruction, and violence of the strong against the weak. These things are all perfectly natural. On what basis then does the atheist judge the natural world to be horribly wrong, unfair, and unjust? He's perfectly right to bring this up that if there is no God and we're just all products of evolution and natural selection and 
survival of the fittest, that all depends on death, destruction, and violence. So how can you use that as an argument against God? Timothy Keller is absolutely right in that. He says the non-believer in God doesn't have a good basis for being outraged at injustice. If you are sure that this natural world is unjust and filled with evil, you are assuming the reality of some extra-natural or supernatural standard by which to make your judgment. So he's calling out the hypocrisy of the atheist here. That the atheist can't have it both ways. You can't say that suffering is evil. You can't say that and throw out all the other things about a moral framework that you don't want to have imposed on your argument. You have to be able to deal with this issue. And so, that leads us to ask some, kind, some questions about the atheistic position here. Does the atheist presupposition that suffering is an inherent evil hold up? In some cases, it might be an inherent evil where there is evil and injustice done. Yes. But there might be other times where suffering is amoral. That it it doesn't fit into this moral or immoral paradigm per se. That sometimes suffering is just suffering as a byproduct of the natural world in which God created. We'll look at some passages this evening that might help us see that. Another question we might ask ourselves, if God is good, must He stop evil and suffering in an interventionist way that is presupposed in the logic of the atheist? What the atheist really thinks they in their argument, they don't really want this, but in their argument, they say they want it. Well, it, God, He would just have to come in and intervene and stop evil just like that. He'd have to wipe it out. Well, I think we can still believe in a perfectly good and all-powerful God and not just assume that God is going to intervene and stop every moment of suffering in the life of his creation. And in fact, I think the one time where there where you do have that, they don't really like it. The existence of human suffering actually can point us to God. And I think that's critical for us to look at this afternoon. Uh, the existence of human suffering can indeed point us to the existence of God. And as C.S. Lewis said, atheism is just too simple. The arguments from atheists are oversimplified. The Bible does address the issue of suffering, and it's far from simple. In fact, it is multifaceted. And yet, they want to reduce it to something simple. They don't want to accept all the reasons of suffering. The Bible does not shy away from talking about 
suffering. In the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 8, in Romans chapter 8, and in verse 18, Paul says here in this passage, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the, chain, the pains of childbirth together until now. What Paul is making absolutely clear is that suffering exists in this world. And we as God's creation, even we as God's children in a very special way as Christians. We live in a world where there is pain, there's suffering, there's sickness, there's death. There's all sorts of calamity that might happen. There's all sorts of things that we might have to endure on a very personal level that might try us to our core. The Bible does not run away from the fact that reality, that the reality of this world includes experiences of pain and suffering. And even faithful children of God who are seeking to do God's will must come to realize that they live in a world where evil and suffering exist. And as such, Christians will be affected by suffering. The Bible does not hide that fact. And I think if you were to ask, where did it all go wrong? I think you have to begin at the beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, in Genesis the third chapter, you'll remember that after God had created the world and everything in it, was very good until chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3 and in verse 14, after Adam and Eve had eaten of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the Lord said to the serpent in verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and be between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband. And he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. I mean, you just read those verses, there's going to be enmity and strife. There's going to be pain. There's going to be cursing and toil. There's all sorts of problems there that come out of the result 
of Adam and Eve's sin. And before that, the world had not known those things. Which led Paul to be able to say in Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. One of the reasons that we experience death in this world is because of the moment in Genesis chapter 3. If you've ever been by the bedside of someone who passed away, you know the unpleasantness that death brings. You know the suffering that it goes through, that someone goes through. And that suffering and that death is rooted in the fall and because of sin. That God intended for human beings to live in His presence and in His fellowship, and yet when man sinned, that introduced pain, anguish, and suffering in God's presence. We, we were not able to be in God's presence any longer in that condition of sin. When sin entered the world, suffering and death were introduced into the world. And if we want the most basic, elementary, first answer to why suffering exists in this world, you have to start with sin. And you know that whenever sin entered into the world, it was not because God caused it. It's not because God wanted it. In fact, it's because of God's adversary and our adversary who brought it here. And we accepted it. But another difficulty in dealing with the existence of suffering in Job, in Job chapter 1, probably very familiar with the opening chapters of the book of Job, where Satan comes before God and he's looking to make trouble, as Satan always is. And he comes before God and he says, Look, God, you, you've just protected this guy named Job. You've protected him. He serves you only because you protect him, only because you've blessed him with everything that he has. And so God says, Okay, you can take all that away from me. Okay, so Satan does. We read about that. When Job lost everything. And. He worships God instead of cursing God's name. And the story continues in Job chapter 2 when Satan appears before God again. And the Lord says to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. He's upright. He's blameless. And... Satan answers in verse 4, skin for skin, yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, he will curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your power, 
only spare his life. And then Job gets a bunch of boils on his skin. And he still does not curse God. One of the realities that we have to come to understand and accept is that God will allow us to suffer. And it's, in Job's case, it's not punishment. In fact, it's because God had confidence in Job to not give up faith and doubt in God. And the book of Job is far more concerned with the question of who you serve while you suffer more than it is trying to explore the cause and the source of suffering. But what we see is that God allowed Job to be tested. That does not mean God wanted it. Because sometimes we see God and His will, and we talk about the will of God, and sometimes we have to be a little bit more clear in what do we mean by that. God permits sin to exist in this world. He permits us to make a choice to sin. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not because God commanded it or willed it in that sense of a command, but that He allows it to happen and He permits it to happen. There are things that He has decreed that must happen, like Jesus being appointed to come to this world and to die for us. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23, Acts chapter 4, and verse 27 and 28, God decreed that certain events in the life of Jesus would happen. Sometimes when we're talking about God's will, we might talk about His perceptive will in that this is what God desires in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 that God desires for all men to come to repentance in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. That God desires for everyone to be saved. Reality is not everyone is going to be saved, but God desires for all to be saved. And then you have His preceptive will that God declares, demands, and commands everyone to do something. In Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, He talks about how Jesus is going to judge the world and how that all men are commanded everywhere to repent. God may permit certain things to happen while not commanding or decreeing that those events happen. And so we need to be very careful that if while we are suffering and going through something, we better not point the finger back to God and say, God, You made this happen. We need to be very, very cautious before making that kind of assumption. Because our suffering might be the byproduct of free will and human choice. I think in the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, 
We read about how Joseph's brothers hated him. How they were filled with envy and jealousy. And because of his brothers hating him and were envious of him, Joseph had a lot of suffering. He was taken by his brothers. He was thrown into a pit. He was sold as a slave. He went down to Egypt. Didn't get to be with his family for nearly 20 years. His father thought him to be dead. And while in Egypt as a slave, he is accused of rape that he did not do. He was thrown into prison unjustly because of that accusation. And he was there for a number of years in which that he actually helped some people out by interpreting their dreams. And he just says, hey, I want you to remember me. And guess what? They forget about him. And then finally, he does rise to some power, but all the suffering that he had to go through before that, because of some other people's bad choices and own sin, sometimes your suffering that you go through is not because of any action that you did yourself. (laughs) It's all because of someone else in their choices, and their sin. But God created us with free will where we all have those choices. We might think, well, free will, maybe we just need to get rid of that. Well, C.S. Lewis had some things to say about that. In Mere Christianity, I told you that was a good book. He says, of course, God knew what would happen if they used their freedom the wrong way. Talking about Adam and Eve. He says, apparently he thought it worth the risk. Perhaps we feel inclined to disagree with him. But there is a difficulty in disagreeing with God if God thinks this state of war in the universe a price worth paying for free will, then we may take it. It is worth paying. If God did not allow free will, then He takes away the possibility of genuine love commitment, and fellowship to be reciprocated to Him. He saw the benefit of love, loyalty, freedom, and fidelity worth the risk. Other byproducts of God's creation that we live in a realm where time and chance happen. You could be wrong place, wrong time. In the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes chapter 9. In Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and in verse 11, Solomon, he's reflecting upon life and he says, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. Have you ever heard of the story of the underdog? That's what he's talking about. I love a good sports movie with an underdog winning. He's saying time and chance. We live in a world where time and chance happen. Why do bad things happen to good people sometimes? 
It's just what happens. It might be because God created the world and the natural order of things to happen. Certain things, certain events. You think about weather events and how catastrophic a tornado might be. God created weather patterns. Not because He wanted us to suffer loss of, uh, of a family member or all our, our belongings or anything of that nature. But it's the natural order of how God created this world. Another reason that suffering exists, and I think this helps us kind of transition a little bit to how should we view suffering, is that God can use suffering to discipline His children. In the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, the Hebrew writer talks about the great trials that those brethren were having to deal with. That they were losing their, their land and, and maybe some aspects of their livelihood and their jobs. And in Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 6, Hebrew writer says, For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines, and He scourges every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He goes on in verse 12, to, to make the statement, Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble and make straight paths for your feet so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. At God's discipline, it can have a healing effect because it can strengthen us. The suffering that you might be enduring it might be a trial like a refiner's fire, as Peter would describe them in 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 6 and 7. That this discipline, this suffering, it may feel hard, it may feel difficult, it may feel as if we are beaten down, but what it can create within us is a sense of urgent dependency on God that we had never felt before. Think about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and in verse, uh, verses 7 through 10 when Paul is talking about that thorn in the flesh and how he calls that it being sent from a messenger of Satan to torment him. And he says that he prayed three times that it might leave. And in verse 9 it says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient. For you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul, he kind of sees this idea of suffering and all the challenges that he went through, and he kind of reverses it, doesn't he? Instead of looking at it as a reason to lose his faith, 
He says, this is a reason to trust more in God. That I'm going to trust and rely on His grace and on His power. That's what suffering can do for the Christian who is willing to look at it through that lens. What we have to accept is that our position is going to offer a very limited viewpoint. We mentioned that atheists assume that since suffering exists, that it will always exist. And I think that is the fatal flaw in their argument. That they assume this is how it's always going to be. They assume God is not doing something or that He has not already done something to ultimately defeat evil. And I believe we can see that suffering gives us a reason to believe in God. Let's take the beginning where we started this afternoon. And if God were all good, He would defeat suffering. If God were all powerful, He could defeat suffering. Suffering is not yet defeated, therefore God will defeat evil and is presently working against evil. You see, you don't have to come to the conclusion that there is no God. Because they don't account for that, do they? And I believe we can account for that. That God is going to do something because He has done something. He sent Jesus to this world. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God did intervene in this world. God is working against evil. His ways are different than our ways. He does not intervene and act in the ways that we might expect or even want. That God may not cause your suffering right now that you're going through to stop. But God is not a detached, uncaring, and unsympathetic God. God does care. God does care about you. He loves you. And He does not want you to have to endure this suffering. That's why He sent His only begotten Son. Jesus. You look at these passages, we don't have the time to do it this evening, but you look at those passages in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 9, 14 and 18 chapter 4 and verse 15 and chapter 5 and verses 7 and 8, and what you learn that Jesus, that He came to this world and that He suffered. Don't tell me that God doesn't know what suffering is about. Don't tell me that God didn't do something to get rid of suffering. He sent Jesus to this world to deal with it and its problems and its effects. And Jesus is going to return again. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and in verses 6 through 9, what Paul says that when Jesus returns, it's going to be for the purpose of dealing out retribution to those who cause pain and affliction in the life of others. And God is going to put suffering to a complete and total end once this world is burned up. 
And while the incarnation of Jesus does not necessarily provide a solution to suffering, it at least on an academic level, it does provide a lens and a filter for understanding how God perceives suffering. God is touched by our suffering. He sympathizes with our suffering. Suffering does not push us away from God. Suffering ought to help us see our dependency upon God. And on a spiritual level, the incarnation of Jesus catapults us to the ideas that God desires for humanity. Restoration, redemption, and transformation. And so, how should we respond to suffering? In Job chapter 1, Job didn't say, after hearing about the loss of everything that he had, every material possession that he owned, and every family member except his wife. After losing that, he didn't say, well, okay, I'm done. He worshipped God. His suffering propelled him to deeper faith in God. As I said at the beginning, the existence of suffering does not have to become an existential crisis of faith. It can motivate us to deeper faith. Which is what Paul was telling us, that trusting in God's grace and His faithfulness in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We can entrust ourselves to God in Christ in suffering, just as Jesus did when He went to the cross. We need to pray for wisdom and we need to embrace the trials that we might go through. We need to learn how to respond in a positive way to suffering. Because even though darkness and suffering and injustice that we might endure it might be hard and it might be difficult. The light of God can be seen in those moments. Just as Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 6 and 7, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God cares for you. Don't forget that powerful truth. No, I am going to hear about it tonight. I've gone well over my usual time. <laughs> I appreciate your good attention this afternoon in dealing with what I believe is a very, very important question and issue regarding our faith. Because suffering is unpleasant and it can be challenging to the very core of our faith and our lives. And yet, if we would keep a Godward perspective, suffering can help us see our dependency on God. 
And if we can maintain a perspective like Job, for instance, we are propelled to deeper faith, to worship more in times of hardship and suffering, then we will be all the much better for it. And the beautiful thing is, is that for the Christian, there's the promise of heaven. The hope of eternal life where there is no pain, no sorrow, no tears. I want to go there where it's better than anything in this life can offer. And I hope that you want to go there as well. This afternoon, you can begin that journey of becoming a Christian, making heaven your home, if you would come to the Lord, have your sins forgiven, and become a child of God. Perhaps you've already made that first step to become a Christian, but you've not been living as you should. You've allowed sin to come back into your life. Don't leave here before making correction in your life and turning back to the Lord Jesus Christ. If we can help you in some way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?